Let's continue to look at grace as we are going through this series. And um, what I hope that you are seeing, and I hope what is happening in your mind and your heart, is that as we are talking about grace, that we are building on our understanding. That you're learning something new that kind of builds on the truth that, that we learned the week before. And um, we've, we've learned a couple of things so far. We started in, in understanding the origin of God's grace, where it comes from. And it comes from, from God. It, it, it's something that originates in the heart of God. And it's his decision to freely give what is good to people who are fundamentally bad. Um, and that's what makes it so different than us. That's what makes God's character so different from us. We don't want to give good things to bad people. We want to give bad things to bad people. That's just what we are. That's what we do. That's how we operate. But God, in his grace, extends good things freely given to people who the Bible calls his enemy. And that's something that that is unique to God. But then once we come face-to-face with the grace of God, and we understand that he extends that grace to us through Christ, through Jesus' life, through his, his sacrificial death, through the resurrection, and that he offers us forgiveness and, and mercy as part of that grace if we put our faith in him. Once we do that and we respond, just like the students that we've seen today, that he takes his grace and he plants it in us as believers for the purpose of administering it or, or distributing his grace to the world, and he equips us with gifts. And he equips us in unique ways to be able to extend grace to other people. He gives us the grace to be able to obey him because we could not be obedient to God without his grace. Amen? And we could not, be, we could not serve other people. We couldn't serve one another in the church or people outside the church were it not for the grace of God operating in us. So it, it starts in the heart of God. It, grace is the heart of God, but then he takes his grace and he puts it in us through the Holy Spirit so that the world can see the reality of his grace. If you came face to face with Jesus' grace for the first time and you, and you put your faith and trust in him, it's because you saw it in somebody else. You heard it communicated. You saw it lived out in somebody else's life. And so today, I want us to go a little bit deeper in that understanding of, under, of knowing that we are bearers of God's grace to the world. So I want us to go back to a verse that we've already looked at and sort of use that as a springboard into this idea that I want to present to you this morning. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 is a verse that we've looked at already, and, and I want us to go back and review that for just a second. Ephesians 2, 7 says, so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, we've already understood that what Paul is saying is part of, that's part of the purpose. It's part of the purpose for grace being in us so that it can be seen by the world. And the, and the nature of grace that we want to show and that Christ desires to show in the gospel is the immeasurable riches of it. Now, I want us to think about that phrase and why Paul uses that to describe grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace. If we get into the language, the original languages, that word for riches is a noun that means 
fullness, a fullness or an abundance of wealth. And you can think about riches as you would normally think about riches in terms of money, wealth, like an abundance of something. But then that word for immeasurable is a verb. You would think, well, that would, it would make sense that that would be an adjective, but it's not. In, in the original language, it's a verb, and it means to surpass in throwing or to throw over or beyond something. And so I kind of have a picture of um, a home run in baseball. There's the wall. There's the outfield wall. And when the ball is hit beyond the boundary of the outfield wall, that's a home run. And so Paul uses this word, immeasurable, to describe the richness of God's grace. It says of grace that the richness of grace will always extend beyond any mark or any measure. Just like the baseball goes over the fence. It can't be held in by any kind of boundary. This is why we said before in the first message that grace is grace because it will always overcome sin. It overcomes all sin. If sin is the wall, if sin is the boundary, the immeasurable richness of grace will always go beyond that boundary. You understand? You see the picture there. Um, That's why we say that sin can never go beyond grace. Grace will always surpass sin. Whatever limit sin tries to, to create or whatever boundary it tries to create between our coming to God, grace will never let that happen because grace will always go beyond or like that, that verb of being thrown beyond. It will always go beyond any limit. I, I think this is kind of the picture of what David describes in Psalm 23 when he says of, his, of the grace of God in his life, my cup overflows. The immeasurable riches. You can measure a liquid in a cup as long as it can stay in the cup. But once I pour into a cup so much that it overflows, I can't measure it anymore. It becomes immeasurable. And if I got the biggest container I could find to measure the water, when I pour so much in there that it overflows, then it becomes immeasurable. This is the picture of grace. It it doesn't have any limits, and it never will have any limits. And that's kind of um, hard for us to comprehend sometimes to think about something being immeasurable. We figure out a way to measure everything in numbers, in metrics, And when we think about immeasurable riches, we usually think about money. But even the richest person on the planet, even their riches can be measured by numbers, right? Can you imagine somebody having so much money that there was not a number to put on it? Like that's not even possible. Because we, have a, we can always just add a zero to the end of it. And you can have an infinite number of zeros. So that means even material money and wealth can never be immeasurable. Because you can always just tack another digit onto it. Grace is beyond all measures. Do you understand how, how far that reaches? How big that is? And that's hard for us to understand. Because everything can be measured in the world. 
but not grace. Grace is immeasurable. It always is going to go beyond the bounds. Now, you think about the immeasurable riches of his grace. Think about a, 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 an amount of money that can't be measured. Like, that's impossible in our minds. But think about the richness of grace that can't be measured. And God chooses to give it to you for free. If somebody did have immeasurable riches, which is impossible, imagine if they just gave it to you. Every bit of it. And you didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't even buy a ticket. It's just he, he extends it. He gives it like we can't fathom that, but that is the picture of grace that we see. He it's great and, and it's immeasurably rich because it can't be measured, but how much greater is it that that's the grace that God chooses to give you and I for free? So based on that understanding, I want us to go ahead this morning because there's a big point I want to get to, and we've not gotten to it yet. But I really want us to just understand this immeasurable richness of grace. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. We've also already been in Romans chapter 5, but we're going to look at some different verses and we're going to go into Romans chapter 6. So Romans 5, I want us to read verses 20 and 21 and go a little bit deeper. Verses 20 and 21 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see that picture we just talked about? There it is. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the book of Romans is, is, is quite possibly one of the most important books of the New Testament in understanding salvation and, and grace. And in chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, Paul brings home this truth that we've already touched on in the first message. The fact that it was one act of sin in Adam that brought the condemnation of sin to all of us. It was in that one act that the condemnation of sin is placed on us all, but also the one act of righteousness in Jesus led to justification for everyone. And what you see happening, what Paul's doing in Romans is he's, is he's painting this picture of Jesus almost as a second Adam. That Adam came, there was a relationship between God and man that was pure and uncorrupted and undivided. And then because of Adam's choice to sin and rebel against God's instruction, sin came into the world, broke that relationship. And there was nothing that could be done to restore it until Jesus came. And, and to cancel out or to overcome that one act of disobedience that brought the curse of sin to all men, Jesus comes as like the new Adam to say, I'm going to fix what the first one broke. And I'm going to come in and restore. And my, my one act of obedience in contrast to Adam's act of rebellion in my act of obedience is strong enough to bring forgiveness for all of that sin. 
So this is the picture that, that Paul is painting here with Jesus. But now in verse 20, he says something that his Jewish readers would have um, freaked out at. And, and, and it's in verse 20. Because the Jews loved the law, didn't they? They loved the Old Testament law. And what we see, the reason they had such trouble with Jesus is because they thought that obedience to the law would get them righteousness. That that was the measure, that was the standard. And as long as they could meet that standard, as long as they could be the best at measuring up to that standard, that that's where their righteousness would come from. And Paul already in Romans has said, the law is not strong enough to redeem us. The, the law is not strong enough to bring righteousness. It's not capable of that. And that's not what it was for to begin with. But look at what he says about the law in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. So not only did the law come to show us our sin, it came and increased it, Paul says. It increased the trespass. And the, and the Jews would have heard Paul say this and say, how can you say that about the law? Because the law is what we're putting all of our hope and faith in. And he says, no, the law came and it increased the trespass. And you say, well, well what, what does that mean? Sin existed before the law. Right From the moment Adam disobeyed in the garden, sin came into the world. And so sin existed. But then the law was not given to the people until later by, Mo by Moses. And so as the, sin did not come into existence at the same time the law did. The sin was already there. But Paul says when the law came... It increased the sin. Because now we could see sin for what it really was because we had the true righteousness of God revealed to us in the law and sin looked bad before, but now when you put the righteousness of God up next to it, it makes it even bigger. Here's the way I, I tried to illustrate this in my mind. It's like the law shined a huge spotlight on sin. To show us what it really was. Have you ever gotten a stain on your shirt? Yep. Like maybe you're at Chick-fil-A and you're digging into those nuggies. And you've got, and you've got, you find out you got barbecue sauce, you got Chick-fil-A sauce, whatever your choice. There's like eight different ones. Pick one. But you get it on your shirt. And so then you're like, man, I got to get this out. So you get a nap, you know, you lick, you get a cube of ice, whatever, and you start... You start rubbing that thing, and you're trying to get it out, and then you, then you rub it with a napkin, you get more ice, you rub it. You do the best you can to try to get that out. And then it dries, but because but, you know it's there, you can still see. Yeah, there it is. You can see that little bit of stain on your shirt. Thank you, Larry. You like those? I mean, that's Disney World for you right there, right? The visual effects. You know it's there. And say maybe you go to your friend or your spouse or something and you say, hey, can you, see, can you see, do you see anything on my shirt? And they look at it and they go, no, it looks fine to me. And, and then you do this. You go, 
Well, no, look, I've got to, look, look right here. There's a spot right here. And then they look at it and they go, oh, yeah, I see that. I see that now. And then they can't unsee it, right? Because now every time they look at your shirt, they're going right to that spot that you pointed out. They couldn't see it before. They didn't even know there was a stain there until you pointed it out. And then, and then they look at it and go, oh, yeah, dude, I can't stop looking at that stain on your shirt. Like every time I see you, you got to do something about that. And you're like, I know. Every time you look in the mirror, you, you, you see it. You didn't realize how noticeable, how big it was. You didn't even notice it was there until, until somebody pointed it out. That's what Paul's talking about. The law, sin was already there. We, have, we were already stained. But what the law of God, the righteousness of God revealed through the law said, no, 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 no. Look at this stain compared to the purity of God, the pure, clean righteousness of God compared to that. Like that stain may not have looked big, that big of a deal before, but once the law came in, we saw the stain of sin for what it really was, and it, and it just increased it. It made it bigger. So once God revealed his righteousness, it increased the sin. The law increased it. The purpose of the law was never to give us the ability to be righteous. God did not give the law to the people in the very beginning to say, look, if you want to get back and restore your relationship with me, here's your checklist. Here's what you got to do. Work really hard to do this, and then you'll make it. He gave them the law to show that it would be impossible for them to be able to do it on their own. But they were missing that. And they thought, that, they thought we can do it. We can do it. That's what we have to strive for. But it was to show them how great their sin was. It was to increase their sin so that they knew they needed a Savior. And that's what happens in our life. When we come face to face with the righteousness of God, we understand that we can't save ourselves. That we're not strong enough. We need a Savior that's full of grace. Because look at what it says in verse 20. And it's this picture of immeasurable grace. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see that? Where sin increased, sin got the wall of sin got bigger between us and God when the law came. We might have thought we could climb over it on our own, but when the law showed up, the law showed us that the wall was way too high and there's no way we'll ever climb it. But grace went higher. Grace went over that. And he, he conquered that. And that's an incredible truth. Grace went further than the law. It was always immeasurable and always surpassing. So now Paul has established this and he's... And he's Talking about the law in this great, limitless, immeasurable, it never runs empty, it's never too short, it's, it will always overcome any and all sin. But then as we go into chapter 6, Paul takes a different direction and it's because he anticipates something. Because he knows the nature of of people and the Holy Spirit inspires him to go in this direction. 
when we think about something being valuable in this life, in this world, rarity increases value, right? The less of something that exists in the world increases its value. If there's only one in the whole world, it's way more valuable than if there's 10 billion of it, right? So rarity increases value. So what would we as people in that system be tempted to do with a grace that was limitless? A grace that can't be measured, a grace that's always in abundance. We would be tempted to make it less valuable because there's plenty of it. And so Paul knows this. And so if you go on through that verse 21 in chapter 5 and move on into chapter 6, let's look at what he says in response to this this description of how great grace is. Romans chapter 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? He says, what should be our response to this huge immeasurable grace? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. He screams, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's the picture that we saw this morning. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might... Walk in newness of life. He says, hold on a second. Don't think that you can do this to grace. Here's the big idea that I want you to leave with today. God's grace is free, but it can never be cheap. God's grace is absolutely free. Absolutely With no strings. But it is not cheap. And we can confuse the two. We don't give away valuable things in this world, do we? We give away the things that we don't really need. We have a a clothes closet, and I'm grateful for everybody who brings clothes to the clothes closet, but you don't go to your closet and pick out the most expensive favorite article of clothing you have and bring it to the clothes closet. I think it would be awesome if you did. And then God may teach you something about grace if you decide, hey, I'm going to do that and see what God teaches me through it. But you go through and you look for the stuff you don't need, the stuff you don't want, and you, and you give that away for free. If you got some $100, $200 piece of clothing you don't want anywhere, anymore, that's going on Facebook. You're getting cash for that. Right? I mean, that's the way we think. But grace is absolutely free, but it is not cheap. What Paul knew is that people would be tempted to see the immeasurable richness of grace and say, well, wow, if grace is always in abundance and it's always free and it always covers any, any amount of sin or any any magnitude of sin, then doesn't that mean we can, we can just do whatever we want? Because it's always going to be enough? 
And if God gets so much pleasure, and if he, he loves us by extending grace to us, then shouldn't we just do what we want and continue in sin? And then that gives God more opportunity to pour grace on us, and then that makes, just, makes grace a bigger deal? How often do we think that way about sin in our life? And it's for good reason that Paul says this. He says, is that the attitude we should have about grace? And he, and he says, swiftly and firmly, absolutely not. Because I believe that Satan, and this is, this is what he does, Satan, our enemy, will use the richness of the grace of God to tempt us to live in a way that hides that, rid, that richness from the rest of the world. Remember, we are stewards of God's grace, right? So how we handle grace in our own lives in regards to our own sin affects the way the world sees the grace of God. So when we take it lightly, we make it disposable like the plastic and paper cups that we have in our house that we will drink out of when we need it and then throw it away until we need another one, and then we just grab another one. When we, when we treat grace that way in our life, it affects what the world sees. It affects what we see in each other. And we do that when we say things like, if, if God loves to forgive, why shouldn't he just forgive me more? Um, we misunderstand grace. And it takes a toll on our life. And there, I'm going to give you, I want us to wrap up on this thought. And I want to give you three th- ways that I believe we show grace to be cheap. Now, don't misunderstand me. When I use that phrase, cheap grace, and that's a term that's debated in theological circles um, within Christianity. I'm not saying that the grace of God can ever be cheap in itself because it can't. Like, it, it is God's grace, and it will always be immeasurably rich, and there's nothing I can do to change that. But the way I represent grace to you and the way I represent grace to the world by the way I handle it in my life, I can totally make it look cheap. Okay? So this is how I think we do that. We can show grace to be cheap. Number one, when we diminish the severity of sin. That's the first thing. When we take sin that God says is a big, huge deal, and we make it not a big deal. We can see the severity of sin by looking at the narrative of the crucifixion. If you, if you ever wonder how serious is the sin in your life, look at the crucifixion. Read what scientists and and doctors and biologists will tell you about the agony and the torture of the crucifixion. Look into the history of it. See how gory and bloody and painful and inhumane and almost immeasurable the pain of the crucifixion. How can we look at what Jesus suffered on the cross for us and think sin isn't a big deal? Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Listen to this. Paul writes this and says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The severity of sin. There it is. Verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The severity of sin is in verse 6. Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And folks, I don't want to be the type of pastor and preacher who shares the gospel without talking about the wrath of God because the wrath of God is part of the gospel. We have to understand what Jesus and what grace saves us from. It doesn't just save us from a bad life. It doesn't just save us from not having the abundant life that Christ came and we just have this mediocre worldly life and then we just die in the end and that's it. There's a wrath in the nature of God that will be poured out on all unrighteousness one day. And it's serious. And when we as believers, because of grace, misunderstand grace and we allow that to to let us see sin as not a big deal, then we're not only damaging our own understanding, but we're damaging the understanding of the world. The world looks at us and says, well, if it's not a big deal to you, why should it be a big deal to me? Paul says the the wrath of God is coming on all of these things. Sin is severe. And that's why we desperately need the grace of God. The second thing we can do is to discard the freedom that Christ brings. Could you imagine being locked in prison for 10, 20, 30 years? And then somebody coming and opening the door and telling you you're free to go. And you step out and you go about 10 steps and you go, huh? You know what, I think I like it better in there. And you just go back. Now there, there, there are some people that that actually happens to. People who spend like life sentences in prison. We call it institutionalization. It means that, that they become so comfortable in living life in captivity that once they get out and they experience freedom, it's too much. It's overwhelming. They can't handle it. And so they end up committing a crime, doing something that they know is going to put them right back in a place where they, where they feel safe. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. That part of what happens in salvation, part of the grace of God, is that the Bible says you were literally locked up and chained to sin. There was no way you were going to escape it. And it doesn't matter how much you tried to break free. It could be that you came to an understanding that you didn't want to be chained to this sin. 
And you tried everything you could to break free, but you can't because you were literally chained to it. And when we sing songs like Chain Breaker or any other worship song that talks about Jesus setting us free or breaking the chains, that's what we're talking about. You were bound to sin and you had no way to get loose until Jesus came and broke it. And it says that he broke and freed you from sin for freedom. For you to leave it. For you to not be tied to it anymore. And so Galatians 5.1 it says it's for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's literally saying Christ broke you free from those chains. Quit going back to the sin. You're, you're negating the work of grace. You're, you're letting grace be completely invisible. When I, God, Jesus has freed me from the sin, I don't have to be bound to it anymore. The difference is I was, I was captive to it and I was destined to choose it every single time. But now because the power of the Holy Spirit's in me, I'm freed. I've got the power to resist it and say no. But what am I doing every time I willingly look back at it and go, you know what, that was kind of fun. I kind of like that. I could go back and do that one more time because I'm free, right? Because there's grace. God will forgive me. He promised he would. Grace is immeasurable, right? It always covers. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to willingly go back to that. We, we discard the freedom. He set us free, and we literally wrap ourselves back up in chains when we willingly choose to go back to that. How is grace visible in that? So here's the last one for this morning. We discount, we, we make grace look cheap when we discount the high price of forgiveness. I said before, grace is free, but it can never be cheap. You know, if you're a parent, you'll know the frustration that I'm about to describe. We will lay down all kinds of money for our kids, right? To give them good things that they want. And sometimes those good things they want are quite pricey, aren't they? And we really don't have any business spending that much money on them. But what will we do? Because we love them, right? Because we care about them. We will go spend ungodly amounts of money on something for them, a gift, because we want to give them something good. Let's take, for instance, a new iPhone. There's probably some students and kids in here, you don't have any idea what an iPhone costs. You know why? Because you never paid for one. Amen. <laughs> you have no idea what an iPhone costs. Because you've never seen it on the bill. But your parents have. And parents, you know that you're paying in the thousands, plus over $1,000 for that device that your kids are carrying around with them all the time. How do you react when you see your kid toss it across the room? What are you doing? <laughs> don't do that. Our kids don't know any better because they don't know what it costs. 
So they'll handle it however they want to handle it. And it's not a big deal. But we see it differently, don't we? Because we understand how much it costs. And we didn't get it at a discount. I think maybe when God sees the way we handle grace and the forgiveness that he's given us. And we just toss it around. I think maybe sometimes God looks in my life and he says, I love you so much and I've given you unlimited grace and forgiveness for every sin in your life. But do you even understand how much it costs? Look at how you're handling it. I'm not going to take it away from you. I'm not going to ground you from it because it's yours. It's a gift. I gave it to you. But you don't have any clue how much it costs, do you? And we won't. Maybe that's part of the goodness of God in that we will never, ever fully be able to understand what salvation cost him. And we'll never understand what it cost Jesus. So the best I can do is take this costly gift that he's of grace that he's given me and I can handle it and use it in a way that lets everybody else see this is something that's really, really valuable. It's not disposable. It's not throwaway. It's a, it's a treasure. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Look at what it, another work of grace. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who, look, number four, verse 14, gave himself for us to redeem us. There's the cost. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Say, how is it that I make sure I don't discount the high price that it cost God and Jesus to bring my salvation? It's verse 12. Grace's work in me also is to train me to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And that's impossible without grace. Every effort that I try to make on my own to accomplish verse 12, I will fail. But I can be successful because I've given the power through grace to be able to resist sin because I'm not chained to it anymore because Christ has given me freedom. All of this is working together. This is all the work of grace in our life. Grace was costly to the Father. And it was costly to Jesus. So again, don't misunderstand. Grace is still grace. There is nothing you or I can do to, to make grace any less than it is already. But I can sure misrepresent it. I can sure hide the glory and the immeasurable riches of his grace. If I choose to abuse it in my own life. So the question I want us to think about this morning is, have we made grace look cheap?
have, have I in my life made grace look like a disposable coffee cup that I will use when I need it to make me happy, and then when I've had my fill, I can throw it away until I get thirsty for it again. Is that the representation of grace that we're given to the world? And have we convinced the world that sin isn't a big deal to God because we don't look like people who've been rescued from it? Grace is not cheap. I want to end with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 as we conclude. Paul writes to Timothy and says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, there's no sinner in the world greater than me. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.